this podcast on conspiracy theories will summarize and then expand upon the two readings. So you're welcome to listen to the summary instead of the readings, although I think you're going to find the readings uh, somewhat valuable as well. And I want to hark back to a quotation we used uh, earlier in the semester, which I don't think I gave enough time for reflection on. And this is a quote that comes from Lenin. Um, and this is according to the author Stephen Powell uh, for Strategic Review in 1986. So according to Lenin, he said, Exploit all conflicts in the ranks of the opponent, necessarily, thoroughly, carefully, attentively, and skillfully take advantage of every, even the smallest, fissure among the enemies, of every antagonism. So I want us now to take a look on how to exacerbate fissures. This will underline the ways and means of subversion in general. So instead of having a theoretical conversation on ways and means, which is, I think, an interesting but an endless debate. Some scholars want to do away with ends, ways, and means for strategy education. Others want to redefine them. So instead of talking about it theoretically, we will look to a powerful set of ways and means that surround a phenomenon a sort of super case study, if you will, to underline the ways and means of subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage. The phenomenon is the conspiracy theory. The most important element of the ways and means already exist. They are the existing conspiracy theories themselves. The ones that already exist, their believers, their recruiters, their propagandists, their lines of communication, their systems, where believers meet in person and online, for example. But the core instrument, if you will, and I'm being liberal with the word instrument here, revolve around, again, those existing conspiracy theories that can, one, act as subterfuge or diversion to plans and programs, to draw an audience's eyes towards a fiction or a partial fiction while subversion is occurring, two, to act as a means to make people distrustful of a government, of military, top scientists, or societal leaders when the conspiracy theory involves distrust of authority. And third, conspiracy theory may act as a means to divide populaces further politically and socially, especially when the conspiracy theory focuses as a villain on another political party, another sect of society, or another line of ideology within a society. We may add to these ways and means the units, the agencies, the teams, and the systems used to amplify or exacerbate conspiracy theories and their effect on societal divisions. This can be done in almost limitless number of fashions. For example, the Kremlin and Beijing have taken memes and ideas distrustful of the pandemic, that means the pandemic's existence, and ideas that support QAnon or QAnon uh, ideology or ideas. These memes and narratives originated in the United States and they're simply played back to US citizens perhaps trying to solidify true believers and also flooding the information environment so that fence-sitters may perhaps give the conspiracy theories another consideration. At the very least, these bots, trolls, storytellers, and amplifiers through multiple intermediaries, often, may cause the target government and target mainstream society to think there is a bigger problem than there really is, a bigger problem with a conspiracy theory and those adherents forcing the government to expend press's resources, time, and to focus internally. 
The antagonists may also produce original stories and narratives and memes with mixed results or pay those in target countries to do so. And antagonists can start rumors and conspiracy theories, pretending that these are grassroots authentic efforts. This is sometimes known as astroturfing. Then they would wait and see, that is the antagonists, and then they'll double down on those rumors and stories that catch fire and go viral. So in this podcast, I will describe some of the phenomena of conspiracy theories so that we can better understand their strengths and weaknesses. Then I will describe a few ways that antagonists can exploit conspiracy theories for their own goals. Throughout this podcast, afterwards, and of course in the seminar, please begin to think of strategies to squash conspiracy theories, to lessen their impact and counter or collapse ways in which adversaries and competitors turn these conspiracy theories into weapons of influence. There are a thousand and one hypotheses and theories on how and why dangerous conspiracy theories end. There is no consensus. Mostly, they are guesses. They can include a range of strategies from a glass-nosed or surgical information campaign, counter-messaging by trusted actors, listening to those lost in conspiracy theories, showing patience and grace and empathy, while asking questions so that some will eventually perhaps disavow themselves of false, errant, and perhaps dangerous beliefs and behaviors. Use of humor, engaging people, not ostracizing them, not shaming them. Otherwise, believers may actually further solidify their beliefs and actually be pushed to radicalize and even on occasion to mobilize to violence. But as prelude to thinking of ways to solve conspiracy theories, if you will, that are dangerous to national interests, so not just any conspiracy theories, those that endanger national interests, and I'm not speaking about those that are benign and entertaining. Okay. So before we begin thinking about solving conspiracy theories, let's first look to key features of why even the most intelligent, diligent, and caring people may fall into the rabbit holes and echo chambers of a conspiracy theory. I'm going to go list 19 of them, and on some of them, I'm just going to bring them up because we've talked about it pr previously, or I welcome questions in, in uh, seminar. I am not going to be reading through my in-draft form, <laughs> and I want to underline that in-draft form, conspiracy theory primer, but I am going to bring out some points and go deeper on some points and then leave the less important stuff out in interest of time. I'm going to talk about 19 theories. I know that's a lot, but some of them I'm just going to pop up there, and then we can talk about it if it's of interest to you. Uh, number 14, I want to say, is my favorite, uh, most one of the most diabolical aspects of conspiracy theories I find. Um, it's my favorite intellectually, not, not you know from a moral standpoint. Um, it's been a major finding of my research over the past 11 months. Okay, of the 19 sort of uh, theories of conspiracy theory. First is need for excitement and entertainment. Homo sapiens have not evolved biologically or cognitively from being hunters and explorers. So we need certain levels of excitement and entertainment, and sometimes conspiracy theories can offer that, especially if they're fun, uh, whether it's vacations to Loch Ness or believing that Elvis is still alive, for example. Number two, attribu uh, attribution of responsibility, attribution of agency amid chaos. So that's attribution of responsibility and agency amid chaos. According to Stephen Van, uh, Van Hoort, when something proves difficult to explain, people often resort to more speculative and extreme explanations in order to find closure and to provide their cognitions with a plausible justification. 
a conspiracy theory has the ability to provide enough rationale for at least a perceived comprehensive explanation. The key concepts that make this possible is the attribution of responsibility. A conspiracy theory attributes responsibility for a certain occurrence or a sequence of occurrences to an external group. For instance, the CIA or the Freemasons. Then according to Rainer Zittelman, the search for culprits is an inevitable feature of every crisis, whether it is an epidemic, natural disaster, economic crisis. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, in early modern period, between 40,000 and 60,000 people, mainly women, became victims of witch hunts. These witches were blamed for the spread of diseases, for failed harvests, for natural disasters, and for other negative events that people could not otherwise explain. Jews were also often accused. There were frequent claims that Jews went around poisoning wells. Number three is disparate societal buy-in can strengthen belief. And what I mean by this, I'm just going to speak plainly, is if you have someone on the far left and someone on the far right both believing that perhaps the QAnon stories are true, then either of those, far left or far right, they'll see, well, there's these other people with completely different goals, completely different worldview, and they agree that QAnon is, is a real person and there is a cabal of, of Satan worshipers, etc. And they have a false sense of truthiness when they see that a number of different people believe in the same conspiracy theory. Number four, need for patterns and stability. According to Sarah Sloat, the world is a scary, unpredictable place, and that makes your brain mad. As a predictive organ, the brain is on the constant lookout for patterns that both explain the world and help you thrive in it. That ability helps humans make sense of the world. But distortions can happen, and the brain can connect dots that are actually non-existent. People are bad at judging what's random and believe that oftentimes patterns are actually coincidences, which leads to irrational connections between unrelated stimuli. For example, just because societal power is dominated by the rich does not mean that those rich people are Illuminati Satanists, though that is a thing that many people believe. The fifth is Ramsey theory. I'll let you guys look that up and we can talk about it, but basically, according to R.T. Patrick, it's the idea that if you have enough data or enough information or enough elements of something, you can always find patterns in it. Um, and even if they're false patterns, in other words, uh, you can look for something uh, in there and you can find kind of what you want. And so conspiracy theories may find patterns in song lyrics and speeches and signs and numbers and other areas of, uh, of events or locations that actually hold no meaning. Number six is the need to maintain positive self-image. Believing that shadowy authors behind some world or local events uh, allows people off the hook for not succeeding in their own lives or professions by their own personal standards. These people, some analysts conclude, can blame conspira uh, conspiracy theories or conspirators, rather, um, on you know, being behind the curtains as the reason they did not succeed in life according to their own standards. Number seven, past precedent of government subterfuge and abuse. So some conspiracy th conspiracies exist, and throughout history there have been a number of conspiracies uh, that have led to crimes against humanity. There were a number of arguably, um, not vast, but definitely um, criminal conspiracies in the United States, in Europe, in Africa, and we can talk about some of those case studies. But the important thing is that there is a, uh, a measure of 
not really truth, but there's there's a, a um, there's like a you know the, it doesn't come from nowhere always. You know, if people are distrustful of the government or they believe some conspiracy theory about the government, a certain government, they may in fact have reason to suspect the government of ill will in the past, uh, even if the conspiracy theory is a complete fiction. So, for example, some governments have a history of calling for emergency security measures during a crisis only to never lift those measures in order to shore up their authoritarianism. Uh, so when pandemic restrictions were implemented in many countries, many citizens throughout the world felt this would lead to permanent military states even after the pandemic subsides. And that could very well be the case in some countries, in other countries perhaps not. Number eight, once people become true believers, it is difficult and painful to change. Uh, in some cases, conspiracy theories, especially if they are taught and believed from a young age, may become uh, foundational narratives that shape our subconscious, shape how we see and sense the world. And breaking down such foundational narratives is not only difficult, but is physically painful. As University of South California, Southern California psychologist Jonas Kaplan notes, the brain's primary responsibility is to take care of the body, to protect the body. The psychological self is the brain's extension of that. When our self feels attacked, our brain is going to bring to bear the same defenses that it has for protecting the body. This is why if someone tries to question your very core values, uh, perhaps your faith or your family or your service, why sometimes you have that adrenaline pumping. You, you, know, you go immediately into fight or flight mode. So the body acts very much uh, to a danger or assault against your core foundational narratives as it does to a physical assault or physical attack. Number nine, lack of basic understanding of science and the scientific process. The word science should be a verb. It is the process by which researchers try to find inconsistent evidence against hypotheses to develop theories. Then future studies attempt to find inconsistent evidence of past theories. Bottom line, findings change, findings update. Scientists in theory are trying to be more precise, more accurate, and more correct. This was a big issue during the pandemic because as we found out more and we studied the coronavirus or COVID-19 more, uh, different uh, plans and suggestions from scientists, from researchers and from doctors and governments change, whether it was about masks or about social distancing or about wiping down surfaces. And some people took that this, 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 these changes are, oh my gosh, these people don't know what they're doing. They're being very wishy-washy when in fact this is arguably good science. You want to update what you know from uh, the evidence that you have. Number 10 is isolation and humiliation from non-conspiracy theorists. They weaken cognitive processes. So the shame, and uh, the shame and humiliation of some conspiracy theories may drive them into isolation. When feeling truly shunned and isolated, they often turn to unhealthy behaviors, one of which is often doubling down into the rabbit holes of conspiracies yet further. Isolation rarely brings people out of the online world of conspiracies to real world and, so and so social networks. So in other words, it's very often just online. You don't have that sense of community. Um, and then people may be impelled to continue down, especially uh, um, avenues of unhealthy habits. Number 11, the need to feel part of a pack of other conspiracy theorists. This is especially true 
uh, in hopefully soon a post-COVID world uh, when you actually have communities of people coming together. And that was, so likewise, when shunned and humiliated, a conspiracy theorist may attempt to find some sort of community. And if they're able to do this, um, this is a way to deal with that isolation and that, that shunning. It's almost, it can be in some cases, almost a quasi-clanism that brings people together. Number 12, many social media corporate strategies reward polarization and radicalization, something that we've talked about a little bit in this course and a lot in the fall. Most social media companies' business plan include keeping users on their platforms for as long as possible. This is to collect and then sell user information to the highest bidders. These corporations recruit addiction experts to advise on algorithms that will keep users glued to screens as much as possible. Twitter rage, clickbait, up next radicalization, doom scrolling, and other phenomena act to almost immediately push users into echo chambers. And I can tell you from experience with my, my fake research accounts, this sometimes happens as little as 20 or 30 minutes, uh, putting you into one echo chamber or another. Number 13, lack of understanding of government bureaucracies. I don't need to tell you guys about this, but most you know great civil servant organizations, they don't have the desire and don't necessarily even have the acumen to conduct actual conspiracy theories. Uh, most, many, or some government employees, depending on the government, depending on the time in history, are dedicated but unlikely to put in free overtime to create some mass conspiracy. Also, a conspiracy requires extreme secrecy and subterfuge. The more people involved and the more people involved that are not dedicated to the cause, the more likely that any attempted conspiracy would be unveiled given enough time. And of course, you have these guerrilla journalists who live and breathe off the possibility of conspiracies uh, or to unveil any kind of ill will of a government organization. So there is a deeply entrenched I don't want to call it even a cottage industry, but it's a billion-dollar industry to try to find corruption. Fourteen, this is, my, this is one of the things that I find most interesting right now, and this is the focus of my research. Number fourteen is the need for superiority and feeling special. Some people have an urge to feel superior to others, that they are special or have unique insight. Such people that give into conspiracy theories may... Uh, call non-believers some version of sheep, sheeple, normals, muggles, unenlightened, ignorant masses, zombies, and I'm quoting here from my research, some of these conspiracy theorists will maintain an air of superior intellect without providing evidence or logic of the supposed conspiracy. Uh, they may call themselves some version of being, and I am quoting here, woke, awakened, conscious, in the know, spiritually superior, transcendent, special, evolved, and free living on a plane, or free living on a plane of existence above everybody else. Number 15, a need for a clear black and white uh, war between good and evil. Our limbic system favors simplicity, us versus them, our football team against rivals, my political party against yours. This tribal phenomenon may reward conspiracy theories that oversimplify the world into good and evil, black and white. And many, certainly not all, storytelling traditions favor a clear protagonist and a clear antagonist. In part, this influences our subconscious to also look for good and bad sides of issues in life. To some, it may feel instinctive. According to Andre Higgins, bigger and more corrosive lives, ones that don't 
fiddle with figures but reshape reality have found extraordinary traction. In this case, he's looking at the country of Hungary. And I go on to quote, the art of tribal politics is that it shapes reality. And the next quote is from Peter Kreko. Uh, Lies become truth and explain everything in simple terms. And political struggles, he added, become a war between good and evil that demands unconditional support for the leader of the tribe. If you talk against your own camp, you betray it and get expelled from the tribe. Number 16 is deficit of critical thinking. I'm not going to go into an explanation. Number 17, the Dunn-Kruger effect. If you don't know what the Dunn-Kruger effect, uh, please ask in seminar or feel free to look it up. Um, and we can talk about it a little bit. Basically, people that don't know a lot and aren't necessarily that smart or are ignorant, I should say, are uneducated. They tend to have a much higher, um, uh, a, a much higher confidence in their conclusions. Whereas people that are lucky enough to be educated um, and to uh, understand critical thinking, they oftentimes will have low confidence in some of their beliefs, knowing just how much they don't know. It's just like the more I read, for example, and I'm talking about me as in Howard, the more I read, um, the more I realize I don't know. Uh, I don't know so much about the world. Um, whereas someone might just read one book and be like, well, I'm an expert on Mongolia, for example, and I'm looking, on a, looking at a book uh, on Mongolia. Uh, number 18, sharing content without reading. Okay, so this, you know, playing into the addictive Twitter age and doom scrolling of rabbit holes and echo chambers. Um, people may only sometimes, um, you know, to just continue to click on things and share things without reading them. People don't slow down. Um, there's many misleading click-baiting headlines without critically reviewing the content and the author's credentials. And so this is part, in a way, part of some social media platform's business model is basically share, share, share without actually reading. And in fact, you may be sharing content that could be, uh, that could be for example, dangerous to national interests. Number 19, the final one, false equivalency. According to Marshall Shepard, while healthy skepticism and careful thought should be always be given, should always be given in science, many people mistakenly give equal weight to counter-arguments when there is often a clear consensus on the other side. So, for example, and I've seen this a lot online the last 11 months, which is you'll have scientists and you'll have researchers and you'll have doctors say, COVID does exist and it is deadly. And there are some outlets and some, and some uh, users on the forums I'm on that will say, okay, they get their fair share. Uh, in other words, let's say for a podcast, they get to talk for 30 minutes, and we're going to listen to some yogis that are going to speak for 30 minutes on why COVID doesn't exist. When in fact, again, the consensus is definitely on the side of COVID existing, and you feel like you're balancing things out, but really, that's kind of it's kind of a false dichotomy. Um, the people that say COVID does not exist really don't have a lot of evidence on their side. Okay, so how can we exploit or how do other countries exploit for political and influence warfare um, these types of conspiracy theories? Well, there's a number of ways and we are going to talk about them in seminar. I want to just introduce a few right now. One is a fictionalized or idealized golden age and a need to return to this fictionalized golden age. Now, whether or not this is a conspiracy theory is definitely up for debate. There's no consensus on this. Uh, and frankly, I don't come down one way or the other. Although looking at it through a conspiracy theory lens, uh, I think can be helpful as an analyst. Um, 
Often leaders speak about returning to some past golden age, which very well may have been romanticized, uh, simplified, or fictionalized. In some cases, this longing to return to some golden age can be uh, can reach what Brazilians and Portuguese call saudade. Uh, this deeply personal yearning and nostalgia nostalgia uh, may be conjured especially in cultures that discuss and look to the past to such a degree that people actually claim to remember, not literally, but claim to remember a certain past area before they were born. Now, this is, in many cases, this is not dangerous at all. Uh, in many cases, this is uh, something about um, you know, you're calling for, hey, I want better times like we had before. I think that's fine. I want this country to be stable, prosperous, like we had, you know, three decades ago in country X, Y, or Z. And of course, that that's fine. But it becomes very dangerous when you have, for example, uh, people that call themselves the Aryan race and say, hey, we are and should be the rightful rulers of mankind, and we need to go back to that old tribal time when we were the rulers of the world. Then, of course, it can be dangerous. Uh, the second is a of three things that I'm going to talk about in, the, in this uh, podcast is the political need for a scapegoat. According to Rainer Zittelman, who we heard from earlier, depending on the country and prevailing political ideology, different scapegoats for the coronavirus are currently being denounced around the world. In China, absurd conspiracies are propagating claims that the virus was developed by the United States and CIA for use as a bioweapon. Rumors are also being wildly circulated in Russia and Iran that the coronavirus is a U.S.-made bioweapon. Across the Arab world, disinformation campaigns are peddling the idea that the pandemic is the product of a Jewish or Jewish-American conspiracy to decimate the world population. In Iraq, for example, conspiracy theorists are pushing the narrative that a rich Jewish family, the Rothschilds, is behind the global outbreak. The idea is if you have a scapegoat, if a government can create a conspiracy theory about a scapegoat, then perhaps they can get away with, in some cases, very poor policies, especially early on during the pandemic. A lot of people suffering, a lot of people dying uh, because policies weren't implemented quick enough, quickly enough. And instead of people being focused on bad policies of the government, they're focused on, oh my gosh, it was Israel, or it was the CIA, or it's a bioweapon, and it's no fault at all of my governments. Uh, then the final one I want to talk about is the victimization conspiracy. And again, some people would not consider this a conspiracy theory. Some do. There's no consensus. I don't really come down on either side. Uh, governments and non-state actors have used the idea of national humiliation and victimhood to build unity and justification for crimes against humanity. So think of Al-Qaeda. They have mostly, at least the, one of the core narrative hooks they have is innocence being under attack. And this is used to justify war crimes and crimes against humanity. Hitler rose to power in part, um, some historians suggest, an exaggerated feeling of victimhood from unfair humiliation of German peoples following the First World War along with being on the defensive against communist subversives and incorrectly claiming exploitation by Jewish communities. Andrew Higgins goes on to say, the utility of lying on a grand scale was first demonstrated nearly a century ago by leaders like Stalin and Hitler. Now I disagree. Uh, leaders have lied on a grand scale for millennia, okay? But I understand he's talking about recent history here, and that's fine. Hitler, who coined the term big lie in 1925, and rose to power on the lie that Jews were responsible for Germany's defeat in World War I. For the German and Soviet dictators, lying was not merely a habit 
were a convenient way of sanding down unwanted facts, but an essential tool of government. Today, some scholars suggest the government in Beijing uses the idea of humiliation and victimhood. Uh, fictionally, they exaggerate it, uh, and they develop a, a slightly fictionalized history through a certain lens as a rallying cry for unity and as a reason for expansion, influence, and regional and global political and economic interference. Again, I'm going to let you decide. You guys decide if those are actually conspiracy theories uh, or if we should be looking at it in a different light. I look forward very much to our seminar. Thank you.